You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. My lesson this evening is entitled, Will Only the Baptized Be Saved? In a correspondence with a young lady that asked this question, she had been raised to think that baptism was not necessary to be saved. That uh, she asked and wondered what we thought about that or could I explain what I meant by it. And the article that she was reading, I put an article in the newspaper and share it with people on emails as well. And she asked that question. And that's a very popular question. But to answer any kind of Bible question, it's important to search the scriptures as thoroughly as we possibly can on each subject. That's a a shortcoming for many people who claim to be Christians, who claim to believe in the Bible, but they only want to pick a little bit of the Bible to believe and not look at everything the Bible says on on any subject. So it's important that we do that because we may miss something if we just isolate our thinking about one or two verses that help satisfy our own minds about a topic. But it's especially important when searching for answers about salvation, what one must do to be saved. Baptism is perhaps the most discussed among those who believe in Jesus as the Savior of souls. There are different ideas, and those different ideas can become confusing, uh, and it makes it difficult to know what to think or what to believe. I want to consider this, that first of all, different ideas cannot come from God. God did not print a book that would contradict itself. There would be conflict. And so he wouldn't, it would not come from God, and especially when these ideas disagree. If this is coming from God, why do they disagree? The second thing is, since God doesn't contradict himself, then he will have only one answer to this question that we're talking about. And that's what we want to pursue this evening. We want to look at the answer. There are a lot of books in the Bible, or a lot of books, rather, that are written by men on this particular subject. And uh, we could spend our life reading all that everybody says, but I think it's a lot easier to read just one book and to read the Bible, see what it says. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, if that's what the Scriptures can do, thoroughly complete for every good work, what else do I need from other sources? Really, I need nothing. The Bible has all the answers. Second John 9 even goes on to say, if we go beyond the doctrine of Christ, we do not have God, but he who abides in the doctrine of Christ, and you're not going to find the doctrine of Christ in man's writings unless they're quoting the doctrine of Christ. In the doctrine of Christ, they will have both the Father and the Son. Paul even told the Corinthian brethren, because they were so divided against each other with their own pet ideas, he said, don't even think beyond what's written. Because when you think beyond what's written, you're going to be proud of your position. You're going to be divided. And in chapter 3, they were divisive. And so don't think beyond what is written so that both of you are looking at the same thing. That means you will be united 
in the word of God. So this is what we have when we talk about the scriptures that are given by God through men that he inspired to make sure that we have his right answer on any question. The problem of sin and God's promise, uh, we can look at that. We talked about this last night, introducing the idea of sin. We noted where Adam and Eve uh, had introduced sin into the world because God had given them commandments to obey and they broke those commandments. We looked in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 4 where it says, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. And then in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2, Isaiah very clearly states what sin does. It puts a wall between you and God. It separates one from God. Where Isaiah made the statement, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And so Adam and Eve were separated from God and they were doomed to eternal destruction. That was the dilemma that we built our case upon yesterday or last evening about God speaking the promise to Satan that we talked about. However, God made with that, uh, with that particular curse or rejection a promise to mankind or the world, making that promise to Satan, as we noted in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is that seed of woman. We can establish that very easily. And that seed of woman would provide the world with salvation from sin. And this promise was fulfilled in a virgin birth of Christ, thus the seed of woman when he came into this world. And every human being since Adam and Eve have had this promise in the world available to them. Someone says, well, God's promise is coming along to save mankind. What about all those way back there at the very beginning with Adam and Eve? He had it with Adam and Eve. That promise was made to them. Even when they committed sin, the promise was made at that time. Looking in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5, it says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In Matthew chapter 1 and verses 21 through 23, we have the angel speaking to Joseph about what was going on. He's very confused. Here he is as a woman that's going to be his wife, and she turns up expecting. And so trying to process all of this, then we find the angel speaking to him, said, she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So her son's going to save people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So as we saw the conclusion yesterday evening or last evening, Jesus is the answer to man's dilemma of sin, the sinner's problem. When mankind sinned, God's Justice demanded that he be punished because of violation of law. That's what justice is all about, to 
carry out what the law requires, what the punishment requires, what the rewards allow for. But God also is a God of love and mercy, looking at man's pitiful condition, did not want to sentence them to eternal life, but he still held them accountable and he offered them that opportunity of salvation. We often call this God's grace in the beginning where he gave a gift to someone who did not deserve it, which is basically the meaning of the word grace. We look in Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. It says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So all mankind have been given the opportunity or rather the, the privilege of the grace of God available. Now, that doesn't account for those who don't want it. That doesn't account for those who don't find out about it. But it is there. It is available. It is a real thing that he's offered the world. This unmerited favor of this gift given to someone who does not deserve it is the idea we're looking at. And so God's grace was that giving of his only son to be sacrificed to take away sins. We see several passages. In John chapter 3, 16 is one of a very popular passage of scripture that many will go to. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not, shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then we can look at another place in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. And it says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. A confirmation of his purpose. This was the gift God was offering to the world at this time and forever. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3, Paul in describing the preaching of the gospel, he said, for first or for, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And another passage, and we could go on all night finding passages like this that clear, uh, clearly say he came to save, our, save us from sin. 1 Peter 2, 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died into sins might live for righteousness. Now, the question is, what is the power in Jesus' death that takes away the sin? What is it about him dying that takes away the sin? Let's investigate it a little deeper than just simply saying, oh, his sins, his death takes away our sins. Well, what about the details of how that works? Let's look at that this evening. Blood is that which Jesus offered to pay the price for sin. Before he died, he instituted the Lord's Supper. And he made the statement in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28. He said to his disciples, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So blood is going to take away the sins, as we see the description here. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. It, and in Colossians 1.14, these are, uh, Ephesians and Colossians are somewhat parallel uh, epistles. You'll find the same content in both of them uh, pretty closely. But they say redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. God gave something, his son, who would shed his blood, that blood, would take away those sins. That's according to the gift, according to the grace of giving to mankind who was in sin. So Jesus' blood was a part of the grace toward the sinners. And Jesus proved 
that his blood could do something for sinners when he arose from the grave. He showed his power over Satan, over sin, over death, over eternal death when he came out of the grave. When we look in Acts chapter 22 and verses 22 through 24, the scriptures tell us in Acts 22, 22 through 34, let me see if I'm caught up with everybody or am I too far ahead? Oh, I forgot the one from Revelation there. I mentioned that. Okay, here we go. Now, he proved this claim when he arose from the grave. That's one of the main points that Peter made on the day of Pentecost when he had this crowd of people that were wondering what is all this noise and the tongues like as a fire and these men who were simple fishermen speaking in languages that generally only those who were more scholarly would understand and know how to speak and they were confused about it and Peter began preaching to them. And he preached to them about the one they had just crucified a few days before. And he told them about how that he did not stay in the grave. He came out of the grave. Looking in verse 22, it says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that it, he should be held by it. So what do we have so far about this idea of sin? First of all, we see that sinners are not saved and they're separated from God. That's what we read in those scriptures earlier. The second thing, God wanted to save those sinners. The third thing is, he sent his son to shed his blood in order to take away those sins that the sinner had. And then Jesus arose from the grave, proving his power in his blood over sin and death. And that brings us to the most logical question then that will answer this matter of how does this work? And that is this, if forgiveness and remission of sins comes through the blood of Christ, how does the sinner today come in contact with that blood to have his sins forgiven? All the theme we see is that God graciously gave to people who weren't deserving a gift. It was his son. He shed his blood. It takes away sins. How does a sinner today take advantage of that blood in order for his sins to be taken away? Well, since Jesus shed his blood in his death, then in some way, the sinner's going to have to come in contact with the place where the blood was shed, come in contact with his death. Now, I want us to look at this idea about joining with the death of Christ. How does one join Jesus' death or die with Christ? But before we go into details on that, I want to show you the language of the New Testament, how it speaks that way. First of all, looking in Galatians chapter 2 and in verse 20, the apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now to take that in a strictly literal sense, there were four crosses at the time of Christ's crucifixion, right? There were the two thieves, there was Jesus and there was Paul. I was crucified with Christ. 
Well, obviously we don't know that. So what is he saying? He did say, I was crucified with Christ. The language of the New Testament about Christians becoming Christians is that they die somehow. There's a death involved in how they have fellowship with Christ. There's got to be a death involved. Another place we look in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ, well, when did these Colossians die? And when were they dying with Christ? Christ had died many years before by the time this letter was written. How could that be? Well, obviously, it's not talking about a literal death here, but it is describing how one has to die with Christ. The language brings this out. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in, in God. These Christians at Colossae, they had died. So what does this mean, they had died? And that brings us back to the point again. How does one join with Jesus' death, or how do they die with Christ? And I think Paul very clearly lays it out, especially in a text that gathers this information together to explain it. When we go to Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 through 11, and this is the heart of our lesson this evening, Romans chapter 6, I want us to follow through with these steps. You may not be a Christian or you may be in the audience tonight that you don't believe baptism saves you. And uh, you have a right to that choice of, of belief that you have. But if you have that belief, you've got it because there is some solid proof behind it that you don't need baptism in order to be saved. At least I hope you have that solid proof behind you. Because what I want to look at simply is what does Paul say about this idea of baptism being essential for salvation. And he says it here in Romans chapter 6 and in other places we'll note as we go through it. Romans chapter 6 and verses 3 through 11. I want to read through that together and then we're going to go and break it apart and then uh, look at these parts individually and it'll give us that picture we're looking for to answer that question of how it is that we can come in contact with the saving power of Christ and the blood that he shed. Paul wrote and said, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, obviously, by that statement, he's talking to somebody who's already done this. They'd already been baptized into Christ. But they were having an issue over the matter of the grace of God. And one of the reasoning, one of the points of reason that they were using was this. The grace of God is greater than the sins of man. The more sin you have, the more God's grace will be poured out. Hmm. Well, then maybe the more I sin, the more grace I'll get. And Paul says, God forbid, or certainly not. Don't reason that way. And he makes that point. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In verse 1, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And so they had this phony idea about the more I sin, the more grace I'll get. He said, you can't think that way because you have died to committing sin. And so this is where we pick up in verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized, looking at them who were baptized into Christ, when you were baptized, in other words, you were baptized into Christ Jesus, where, where, uh, where, uh, where baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death, Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, 
even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. There's that language again, talking about these living people who died. He who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let's go back to verse 3 as we begin our study on this. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Baptism connects one with Jesus' death. That's where his blood was shed. It was in his death. And the blood is going to be coming in contact with the person who goes into this death with Christ. And baptism is that act of joining in the death where the blood was shed. And without joining the death of Christ, one cannot contact the power of the blood. You see where we're going with this? To put it another way, if one can be saved with or before baptism, he can be saved with or before dying with Christ and contacting his blood. I don't need baptism. Baptism is not necessary. Then you don't need his blood, right? Oh, no, we've got to have his blood. But the blood is contacted through the act of baptism. So how can you say, I don't need baptism, and yet you need the blood, when that's how the connection is made? And so he goes on and builds on this idea. If you go to uh, number four or verse four, he says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so we also were raised, it's implied, even though we also were raised, should walk in newness of life. These are some other results that we're looking at in this process of being baptized into the death of Christ. These the results are going to have something else as a result of that. And we look and see that to join Jesus' death means what? Well, you don't just stop at death. Anytime a person dies, they bury him. It's, it's just the way of it. And so we have Jesus being buried. When he died on the cross, they buried him in the grave. He's saying that you were baptized into Christ's death. If you're going to join his death, you're going to have to also join his, uh, his resurrection or being buried with him in baptism. Then you're going to be a part of coming out of that grave. So he's not literally talking about a literal death with Jesus. I think we understand that well enough. Uh, to know that he's not, not dealing with a literal death, but to follow the pattern, one is buried with him into something. And so we look in the New Testament, what were they buried into? What were people buried into when they died with Christ, were buried with him into something? And that takes us to the examples we see. They were buried in water. Baptism was a burial in water. Now, baptism doesn't mean water. It doesn't have the word water in it. Baptism just simply means to immerse or to go under or to be covered, completely go under. 
And in this case, water is the burial uh, uh, element here when it talks about baptism. We look in, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 38. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch and they were going down the road. Philip was teaching him about Christ, taught him about how, uh, that he needed to be baptized. Even though we don't read it, we know he had to tell him that because the Ethiopian said, here's water. What keeps me from being baptized? So we acknowledge there, there was water that was involved in baptism. That's not a hard part to, a hard point to establish. But some will define baptism as sprinkling or pouring. And that's not baptism. There are two different words for each of those. Sprinkling has a Greek word and pouring has a Greek word. And neither one of those words is the word that baptism is. Baptizo. So baptism means burial. Sprinkling means sprinkling. And pouring means pouring. And to say, well, baptism means pouring. No, it doesn't. It can't. That's not what the word means. It means a burial. Baptism means a burial. Well, sprinkling then. No, it doesn't. It can't be sprinkling. And so that's not what we're talking about, this sprinkling and the pouring. But it's a burial, a burial. Imagine trying to bury somebody by going over after a service uh, that is commonly done. And we're going to uh, go ahead and bury the body and, and pick up a handful of dirt and sprinkle it on there and say, well, he's buried. That won't work, will it? And yet people will say that's what baptism is, even though the scripture itself says it's a burial. And a burial means you go under, you are covered by something, in this case, water. And we earlier read of the importance of Jesus' resurrection from the dead to prove his power over sin and death. Until Jesus came out of the grave, all that was taught about his blood shed for the sins of mankind, all that was taught about him being the Savior, until he came out of the grave, he was buried just like anybody else was buried. Just like one of the thieves or both thieves on the cross, when they died, they put him in the grave and they were buried and Jesus was buried the same way. It was because he came out of the grave that made the difference. When he came out of that grave, he proved that his blood was the blood that had, had the promise of taking the sins of mankind away. And so the scripture in verse 4 is saying, as God raised Jesus to newness of life, he will raise the sinner to walk in newness of life. But you've got to be buried first before you can be raised to walk in newness of life. We'll note this word newness of life a little later, that it is a life without sin. But consider these questions to help explain the importance of baptism here. When did Jesus enjoy the newness of life? Was it before he was buried or after he was buried? Well, obviously it was after he was buried. And then Paul comes along and talks about person who is baptized and compares it exactly with Jesus. Well, yes, it was after he was buried that he received that newness of life. And he talks about those who were baptized into Christ. When did they receive this newness of life? Was it before they were buried? Or after they were buried, after they came up out of that burial. Well, if it works for Christ, it's going to work for the person who was baptized. So the newness of life didn't come until after a burial. And then they, then they were raised for that newness of life. Now, coming to verse 5, we continue down. It says, for if we have been united together in the likeness of Christ's death, going back to verse 3, you're buried with him in baptism. If we are united with that death, Certainly, we shall also be united together in the likeness of his resurrection. So he's summing up verses 3 and 4 here in this verse here. 
Verse 3, he spoke of being baptized into Jesus' death. Verse 4, he spoke of being buried and raised with Jesus to enjoy this newness of life. The, let me get caught up here. And then the death, burial, and resurrection through the act of baptism is a likeness of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. This is what we're looking at in this idea of likeness. And that's what the preachers preached, that Jesus was buried and that he arose from that grave. And to join him, you're going to have to join his death and his burial and be raised. And that element is water that you're buried in. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 through 4, Paul reminding the Corinthian Christians here. He said, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which you stand, by which you also were saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. This is what Christ did. Now God calls upon you and Christ calls upon you to do something in that likeness. Death, burial, and resurrection. Knowing this, verse 6 says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So he adds another angle of explanation here. Here's what's taking place. You were buried with him. You joined in his death. You rose to newness of life. But what happened when that happened? What, what event, what transpired at this time? Here's what's transpired. That old man that you had that was corrupt in sin, that man was done away with during that process. So that you have a new man that the body of sin might be done away with, that we no longer be slaves of sin. So this is what happens when one is baptized. When a sinner joins Christ in death through baptism, the old man with his body of sin, it's crucified with Jesus in that process of being baptized, being buried with him, and it's done away with. There's your washing of sins away. There's the taking of sins away in that process as he describes it. The old man is removed and the newness of life without sin then is restored. And instead of being slave of sin, you now become subject to a new master. You've changed from that slavery to serving a master, Jesus Christ. Now I want to ask questions again. Uh, uh, ask this question. Is the sinner, sinner's old man crucified with Jesus with his body of sin, done away with before baptism or after baptism? When is that old man done away with? Is it done before baptism or without baptism or after baptism in this verse? You see, before baptism, one still has his old man. To be saved by faith only and you don't need baptism to be saved, well, you're saved with the old man. The old man can't be saved. The old man's the old man of sin. And so as we look at Paul's explanation here, it's not until you get rid of the old man by a death and a burial and a resurrection that the old man will cease to exist. So you can't be saved by faith alone. You can't be saved without, by faith without baptism because that means you're saved with the old man. And then in verse 7, for he who has died 
has been freed from sin. Paul is summing up the old man argument here, being done away with. He who has died, again, not a physical death. He's not talking about uh, this physical death with Christ, but a, the idea of a spiritual death with Christ through baptism, as we've already looked at. One, who is, not fr one is not freed from sin until after dying with Jesus through baptism is what he's saying in verse 7, kind of summing it up, and we move to verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, if we've done all of this, died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. This death through baptism, verse 3, to live with him describes this newness of life after the oldness of the old man is taken out of the way. So you have the newness of life. One is raised out of baptism, so the newness of life will then come into play in that person's life. One who's been baptized into Christ has turned from his former life of sin and sinning, and he commits to a life of righteousness with Christ. That's what Paul was saying in Galatians 2.20 we read a while ago. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. So what next? Then he's going to live for Christ because he put off the old man who wasn't living for Christ. He's put on the new man. He says, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, the everyday life, my flesh that I have, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I take this flesh that I'm living in and I follow what God wants me to do or Christ wants me to do with it because I put to death the old man that said, old man that told me I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Now I've got a new master. I now I've got someone that I am following and I surrender to him. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. 1 Peter 2, 24. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we having died to sins might live for righteousness. One cannot live with Christ free from sin until after dying with him in baptism. That's what Paul is saying. Now let's look at verses 9 and 10. Now in this section here, while we focused on man's interaction with the death of Christ, he's going to spend a little bit of time in explaining what Christ accomplished when he died. So that when we see the joining with that likeness of what he did when he died, we know that we experience the same thing on that spiritual level. Look in verse 9. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Jesus could not have had dominion over or power over sin and death until after he had gone through the death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. If he had not risen from the grave again, his death would have been no different than any other, other person's death. He'd have just been in the grave like, like everyone else. But because he came out of that grave, then we find something explaining to us he gave power to those who would be baptized with him into, into his death. Now, verse 11, likewise. Now, here's what Jesus did. Here's what he accomplished. Likewise, this is what you will benefit from. Likewise, indicating a pattern here. There's a pattern in what Jesus did and the following of that pattern. 
Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now just to pause here for a moment when that statement is made here. Likewise, you reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Because you see, we started out in this chapter by people saying, well, the more I sin, the more grace we get. And so I'll just keep sinning and there'll be more grace. And he's saying, no, you reckon yourself differently than that. That's not the way it is. That's not how it works. You're dead to sin, but you're alive to God in Christ. So he's referring to verses 9 and 10 here about Jesus, just as Jesus proved his power over sin when he was raised from the dead, the sinner can also reckon himself to be dead indeed to sin, but made alive, having been raised from that burial of baptism. So to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God, it comes after baptism. It doesn't come before baptism, according to what Paul said. Now, that's a lot of information. Let's take a breather and let's sum it up right quick. What is Romans 6, 3 through 11 teaching? Well, it's teaching this, that with baptism, we ask the question, what happens? What happens in baptism? Here's what happens. It puts one into Jesus. It joins Jesus' death. It contacts Jesus' blood that was shed in his death. It joins Jesus' burial. It joins Jesus' resurrection. It gains newness of life. It crucifies the old man in the body of sin. It is, one is freed from the slavery of sin, and one is made alive to God. Now, that's what Romans 6 is saying. But Romans 6 is also saying something else. And that is, if this is what it's saying, what happens in baptism and what it accomplishes, then we also can learn from that by necessary implication. Now, some people have trouble with this idea of necessary implication. I don't read of the negative side of this. If you're not baptized, then you won't have this. If you're not done this, you don't have You don't read that in Romans, but it's necessarily implied, obviously. If Romans 6 talks about all of these things that a baptism accomplishes, then if you're not baptized, then all these things won't be yours. And that's also a truth that we draw from that as a necessary implication. Look at these things that that person who is a sinner will not have. They will not be in Christ if they're, if they're without or before baptism. They are not joined to his death. They have not con come in contact with the blood. They have not joined Jesus' burial. They have not joined his resurrection. And they have no newness of life. They've not crucified the old man in the body of sin. They're not free from the slavery of sin, and they're not alive in God. But I don't need baptism, right? If you're not baptized, you don't have all these things that are necessary to be saved. You don't have any of these things that can help you get over sin. This is what Paul is teaching in Romans 6. Now, is that an isolated text? Well, it is for our study. But if you'll notice... That's the way the whole New Testament deals with this kind of thing. That baptism has the power to create those things that we saw in the list. Let's look at a few things that the New Testament describes. Discipleship. Disciples are made through baptism. In Matthew chapter 28 in verses 19, verse 19, Jesus telling his apostles before he ascended up into heaven, He's telling them to go and make this, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. How do you make disciples? You baptize those who are sinners and you make them followers of Christ in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Another thing is that one is saved. 
after he believes and is baptized. Mark 16 and verse 16. It says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. If one is saved is not saved after baptism, you know what? He's also not saved after believing. Because both these words are equal in value. Oh, I don't believe I'm saved by baptism, but you've got to believe to be saved. Well, I, just for sake of devil's advocate, I don't believe you'd be saved by believing, but I believe you need to be saved by baptism. No, 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 no. They're both. They're both required. So if I if he talks about baptism, if one is saved after, if one is not saved after baptism, he cannot be saved after because of that coordinating conjunction that brings them together, that both of them have to be done in order to make it happen. To believe and be baptized are equally necessary. A third thing, water baptism is required for the remission of sins. Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, and in John's account in the Gospels, John 3 and verse 23, we read these thoughts, Mark 1 and 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of remission for the sins of the, uh, uh, for the, for a repent, uh, baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John came doing that, preaching this baptism that would take away and remove sins. Now John, in John 3.23, now John was baptizing in Ainon near uh, Salem because there was much water there. So we have water baptism is required in order for sins to be removed. And there's much water indicating it's a burial. You've got to have enough to bury one under the water. Another thing we notice in, uh, in Luke chapter 24 and verse 46, Luke chapter 24 and verses 20, uh, 46 through 48, that remission of sins, uh, it comes in baptism in, as, as Jesus, before he ascended, told his apostles about this preaching of the repentance uh, for remission of sins. He said, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that remission and remi uh, repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. He has his apostles gathered there. He's telling them this, go and preach this message of repentance and baptism for remission of sins or remission of sins. Well, what did Peter do on the day of Pentecost just a few days later? In Acts 2 and verse 38, it says, as he was there gathered with these people and the apostles, he began preaching repentance and remission of sins in the city of Jerusalem. Acts 2, 38. The people said, what can we do? They knew they were lost. They wanted to be saved. What can we do? He said, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. They did exactly what Jesus said you need to go and do. And so they did that. And then we notice something else. And that, well, this is this last point. If believers were saved before baptism, they were saved before remission of sins. Because remission of sins came after baptism. It was what baptism caused. But if you're saved before baptism, you're saved with your sins. Now, how does that work in God's scheme? It can't. It won't. Baptism washed away Paul's sins. Acts twenty two sixteen. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Paul understood that baptism removes sins. You remember Paul wrote Romans 6. And he well understood this idea of what happens in baptism. So when Ananias spoke to him 
and told him that, you know, he saw the faith that he had been had established as the Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus and asked, Paul, why are you waiting? You believe in the Lord? You need to do something else. You need to be baptized. Why? Because his sins weren't remitted when he believed on the Lord. He still needed to be taught something else. And he was taught to be baptized for the remission of sins. Paul understood that. Before his baptism, he knew that he was not saved. And Ananias told him, here's what you do to be saved. After his baptism, his sins were washed away. One becomes sons of God through baptism. One becomes sons of God. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 through 27. For you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Look at what he's saying here. Baptism is how one puts on Christ and therefore is in Christ. You've got to put him on before you can be in him, you see. And baptism makes that possible. Now, while faith is necessary for salvation, one needs faith. By itself, it cannot put Christ on anyone. It's baptism that puts Christ on a person for that salvation. And if one is made a son of God before baptism, that means he's made a, a son of God before he has put Christ on. I don't think God would accept that, would he, do you? He would not accept one as his son who hasn't put on Christ. But one who has put on Christ is made a son of God that way. Another thing we notice is that sin is cut away in baptism, taken away in baptism. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11 through 13. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He's drawing on a physical concept of circumcision, of cutting away flesh, and he's going to apply it in a spiritual sense about the sins of the flesh, and he describes it being done by being buried with him in baptism. That's what makes it possible in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. If one can be saved before or without baptism, then he can be saved before or without his sins being taken away or cut away and removed or forgiven. He can be saved without being raised also. He can be saved without being raised and made alive, as we see in the reading of that text. If one can be saved without baptism, it's three things. His sins aren't cut away, he can't be raised, and then and he's not raised, and then he is not made alive if he's not baptized. That's what baptism accomplishes in this text. One other example that we're looking at on this point, and that is that Peter just comes right out and says it. Baptism saves. Baptism saves. It's amazing how people can look at that and say that Peter says, the like figure where to baptism also now saves us. But that doesn't mean baptism saves us. Peter didn't mean baptism saves us. Well, how would he state it if, let's say for a minute, if baptism does save us, how would he say it? Uh, baptism saves us. Well, then that's what he was saying. And so it's an effort to try to dodge it a lot of times when people want to get around it. But Peter said it, and he, and he gives an explanation why. 
He says there is also an antitype, uh, as we'll mention just a minute here, what the antitype is or what the type is, an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. The conscience is placed where the guilt is found. And the answer of a good conscience, you got to have a good conscience first. In order to be right with God and have that clear conscience, you're going to have to get rid of the sin that makes it a bad conscience. And so he says, baptism saves you. Not going in the water and getting your skin clean, but the cleaning up of your conscience as you stand before God. And this is all made possible, as we noted in our early part of the lesson, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cleansing power was not demonstrated until Jesus arose from the grave, and he proved it. His blood would take away sins and cleanse the conscience. So Peter compares this with the fact that Noah was saved by water in verse 22, the antitype, which is that baptism saves us. Now for this last question, if one can be saved before or without baptism, he can be saved before or without being saved. Think about that for a minute. I don't need baptism to be saved. Peter said baptism saves. So you can be saved before you're saved. Because baptism is where salvation is going to be found. So there's some problems with that kind of reasoning. But what we've seen is Romans 6 but that theme goes throughout all the New Testament. It's the same thing taught everywhere in the New Testament. person cannot pick up the New Testament and honestly say, well, I think the Bible also teaches faith without baptism will save. Because everywhere you go, you're going to run into the same problem uh, looking at these passages. What did the sinners of the first century then, what were they taught to be saved? Well, very simply, they were taught they had to believe the one that was going to save them that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he has the power to take away sin. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 24, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. The, the Philippian jailer, was uh, he wanted to know what to be saved, to do to be saved, and Paul and Silas told him, believe on the Lord, or, or rather, yeah, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And that salvation will come only when a person turns from the way they were living that kept them from being saved, a life of sin, and turning their direction toward God. And that's the repentance we're talking about. Repentance is the turning away from sin and turning to Christ. Luke 3, 13 and verse 3. Jesus said, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In Acts chapter 2 and, uh, 2 and verse 38, Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized for the remission of your sins. And so we have repentance necessary. Confession is also a part of it. Confession simply means to speak in agreement with. If your faith and conviction in heart says Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then your mouth is going to be willing to claim it and declare it and own up to it. You know, we try to get people to speak what's on their mind, not just think and say, trying to figure out what they say. Do you really believe this? Yes, I believe this. I believe this. And get them to say it. When you say it, you commit yourself. And a part of confession is committing yourself and letting others know that I'm committing myself to Christ. So you confess what's in your heart. You speak in agreement with your conviction that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Romans chapter 10 and verses 9 and 10 Paul made this statement. He says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, 
you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. And we go to 1 John chapter 4 and verse 15. It says, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now something we discovered last night and also tonight. We won't discover it tonight if we did last night, so you know here it is again. But looking at these things, they're all necessary. Repentance, confession, all of these are necessary for salvation. But there's something that it, they, they don't do. You can't read where they can do. There's something that's missing here. And that is not a single one of those passages talk about sin being taken away. They don't remove sin. You, you don't believe sin away. You don't find a passage that says, come and repent your sins away. Come confess your sins away. But as we look at the scriptures, we notice something. That one can be baptized in order for his sins to be taken out of the way. So in Acts 2, 22, 16, when Ananias told Saul, arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, his belief didn't take away his sins, but he had the faith. His repentance, which obviously was there because he turned from the persecutor to the one who was following Christ, it didn't take his sins away, but it wasn't until he was baptized his sins were washed away. Conclusion, what is the answer to this idea of being baptized is necessary to be saved it's yes and that's not my answer and that's not a church of christ answer that's god's answer that's what god says about it now the church of christ honors that and a person who's in sin needs to honor that but yes a person needs to be baptized with all that depends on baptism for salvation it's evident that one who is not baptized will not be saved, Mark 16 and 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe, some would say, well, it doesn't say not be baptized. Why would they even think about being baptized if they don't even believe in baptism? So they're not going to be saved because they're not going to be baptized for something they don't even believe in. So it doesn't have to say and is not baptized. I've heard some people want to get around it by that. But you will be lost if you're not baptized. And anyone can be dunked in water, but true baptism, it requires that genuine faith in Jesus Christ through his gospel to be saved. If you've not done what we have seen in the scriptures tonight, be baptized, you're not saved. Uh, we could go through this again to make the point again, but I think it was clear enough the first time we went through it. You're not saved. You're not a son of God. You're not, you have the old man still hanging around your neck. You've got all of these things if you're not baptized into Christ. But if you turn your life over to Christ and you're baptized into him, you join in with the benefits and all these things come true because it's when one joins with the death of Christ, the power of his death is applied to the sinner and the sins are taken away and that relationship is established by God. I hope you make a decision tonight if you're not baptized into Christ. Perhaps this material is more for helping us who are trying to teach someone the need for baptism. But whatever the case might be, I think you'll have to say, we did get it all out of the Bible. We read it from the scriptures. And perhaps someone's heart may be touched tonight. We invite you to come while we stand and while we sing this song. Thank you for listening to this sermon. 
from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.